Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're finishing out this book series by finishing out volume 13, where this volume is titled Generosity. Today we're in chapters 21 through 30, and we're going to be restarting this program on January 28th from the very beginning, volume 2. It's the group learning program that meets on Sunday and Wednesdays that goes through volume 1, but we're going to be restarting on volume 2. Today we're going to be studying chapters 21 through 30, and I will turn the class over to all of you guys so that we can actually read each individual chapter. Now, students who have been studying this program regularly will oftentimes read the chapters before class, and then when they're coming to class, they might have questions related to specific chapters. But if you haven't read or you haven't had the opportunity to read, it's okay, because we're going to read right here in class. And then after someone reads and I share some teachings on that particular reading, then I will open up to any questions that you guys might have. You can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and a moderator will see that and be sure that your questions get asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Now, a lot of times we actually start this class with a meditation in order to prepare the mind so that we can then retain the teachings for a longer period of time, and this will actually help you to develop your practice more readily. But the vast majority of the people who join this program are actually already meditating regularly. This is just kind of like a little top-up meditation. And in certain situations, we will forego the meditation prior to the reading and just go right into the study of the text. And today, that's chapter 21 through chapters 30. So that's what we're going to do today, is just move right into the teaching. And I will turn things over to all of you guys, specifically the moderators, so that we can start with chapter 21, we can read that, and then afterwards I will share some teachings on that particular chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, and now I'll just turn things over to all of you guys and I'll be here to share teachings with you as we go through reading each of the 10 chapters today. Um, Yes, sir, I'll read the first chapter. Would you be interested in reading the even number chapters, sir? Sure. Thank you, sir. Uh, Chapter 21, the eight stains. Monks, there are these eight stains or pollutions. What eight? One, non-recitation is the stain of chanting. Two, lack of upkeep is the stain of houses. Three, laziness is the stain of beauty. Four, 
Heedlessness is the stain of a guard. Five, misconduct is the stain of a woman or a person. Six, selfishness is the stain of a donor. Seven, evil unwholesome qualities are stains in this world and the next. Eight, ignorance, unknowing of true reality, is a stain more significant than these, the very worst of stains. These monks are the eight stains. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So in this chapter 21, just like I do in all the other chapters throughout the book series, I provide a detailed description of each individual aspect of the teaching that the Buddha is sharing. He shares his teachings very clearly, but oftentimes it's really helpful to have a dedicated practitioner and teacher share with you certain aspects to understand related to what the Buddha is teaching. You shouldn't rely on the uh, explanations that I provide. They're there to help you and guide you in your reflection and understanding of the chapter. But you should look at each chapter and see what there is there for you to glean out of these chapters. So with this particular chapter and all the others throughout the book series, I've provided this description down here to help you understand what it is that the Buddha is sharing. And what I'll do is I'll go through these and help you understand these in the class based on the eight that the Buddha is sharing here. And then as you guys have questions, feel free to ask any questions that you like. So this first one here that he's talking about, this stain or this pollution, essentially what's impacting your life and making it difficult for you to experience this brightness and this radiance of the enlightened mind where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy. There's the Eightfold Path, which is the core central teaching of the Buddha, and everything else plugs into that. And there's all these different teachings that he shares, like this one, which is plugging into the Eightfold Path and helping you to further understand how to actually practice in the world and how to ensure that you're building up your life practice to train your mind. So here, the first one, he talks about non-recitation is the stain of chanting. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, he taught all of his teachings orally. There weren't books, there weren't videos, there weren't podcasts, you know, things like this. Instead, people learned his teachings through his oral discourses, and then they remembered them word for word. And every two weeks, they would chant them. They would orally recite them. And this is the only way that they had to really digest the content that the Buddha was sharing. And they would need to be able to do that in order to get to the point where they could actually understand the teachings, they could retain the teachings, and then they could practice them. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was required for people to be able to chant. That's how they remembered the discourses and then applied those discourses to their life. Nowadays, this isn't actually required. You can get to enlightenment without chanting. Uh, you can read books, you can visit teachers, you can spend time learning with a teacher and classes, courses, retreats. You can spend private time with them. You can access their resources about books and videos and podcasts and things like that. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, he would have considered this a stain. If somebody wasn't able to recite his discourses word for word, it would be a pollution that would hinder them from being able to get to enlightenment. But today it's not that. Chanting does help in order to ease the mind into meditation and bring the mind out of meditation. It does help to cultivate mindfulness, concentration, get awareness of the mind, awareness of the breath. You're able to cultivate this appreciation, gratitude, and respect for the elders and some other 
uh, benefits like that, but it's not required. And that's why on the path to enlightenment, the Buddha didn't have a step called right chanting. If chanting was required of everybody, he would have put that in the Eightfold Path, but it's not there for a reason because it's not required. Nowadays, we can learn through the book, through videos, through podcasts, and the Buddha knew that times would change as what he taught was an oral tradition. He knew that not everybody would need to recite these teachings long into the future. He knew that there would be developments and things like this. A Buddha understands that. So he's not going to create his core teachings of the Eightfold Path that locks something into place like chanting because he would have known that this isn't something that's going to be required in the future. And then number two, lack of upkeep is a stain of houses. So if your house is like really messy and got things you know spread out all over the place, maybe that works for you right now and that's what you're choosing to do. And maybe it's actually easier, particularly if you have young kids, to be able to just function that way and things are right at your fingertips. But as you start to eliminate the pollution of your mind and you start trying to organize your life in a certain way, you'll find that by having your house well organized, in your car, in your office, and different environments that you interact in, it actually helps the mind to maintain its calmness and its peacefulness because you walk into your bedroom or your closet or your office and everything is organized and in a certain place. And this will help the mind to be able to do what it is that you need to do in life. So if your house isn't organized that way right now, it's understandable, but just know that if you do choose to create some organization in the environments around you, it will help to promote some clarity of your mind because things aren't just strewn out all throughout your your house and your office and things like this. Number three is laziness is a stain of beauty. Laziness or complacency promotes this dullness, this lack of motivation, this lack of initiative. In order to get to enlightenment, you need to ultimately practice the enlightenment factor of energy, which is just the opposite of laziness. It's having motivation, having initiative, being willing to do something. It doesn't mean you're go, 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 go all the time. That would be craving, desire, attachment. But you're also not lazy. That's the other side of it. A person who is enlightened, they're going to be practicing that enlightenment factor of energy where their mind has motivation and initiative and they have a willingness to do something and they're able to actually go forward and accomplish goals in life. They're not going to be lazy. When you have that dullness and that lethargic condition in the mind, that lack of motivation, the mind just feels very dull and lethargic. And this really weighs on the appearance. You know, you might have a sad face, you might have a dull complexion, but as you brighten up the mind and bring it closer and closer to enlightenment, the complexion of the face your skin, your hair, your eyes, and other things really brightens up because the mind is now functioning more optimally. So if someone was lacking motivation and they were lazy and they had this dullness in the mind, you're going to see that this is going to affect their appearance. So that's why the Buddha is saying that laziness is a stain of beauty because laziness is going to promote an appearance that is very dull and you know rough looking as well. Number four, heedlessness is the stain of a guard. So heedlessness is this 
substance that causes heedlessness, right? We can have substances that cause heedlessness, or you can actually just be heedless because the mind is so excited and so elated and so thrilled. So heedlessness is this lack of attention, lack of mindfulness, lack of awareness of mind. And this is the stain of a guard. Think about a security guard who's guarding a certain property or guarding people. And if this person's mind was heedless, they wouldn't be able to be attentive and alert to what it is that they're guarding. But whenever you see the Buddha talk about a guard, what he's referring to here is mindfulness. That mindfulness or awareness of mind is your guard. This is the guard of discontentedness. So if you understand the four foundations of mindfulness, of observing the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of mind, and the mental objects, with that right mindfulness and having developed that, you can actually get your arms around this discontentedness that where you see discontentedness starting to arise as a bodily sensation, you can then cut it off and let it go. But if your mind was heedless, where you had unmindfulness, unalertness, unattentiveness, you wouldn't actually be able to have this guard to guard the mind with mindfulness. So that's why he's saying heedlessness is a stain of a guard. The image that you should think about as a security guard, if you had a drunk security guard at your house or at your business, or if you were having bodyguards around you and they were heedless on substances or even just so, 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 so happy they weren't attentive to their job, they're not going to be able to guard this property or guard you as an individual. And the same thing with your mind is that if your mind is heedless with either substances or just so excited and so elated, it's not going to have this guard of mindfulness. Then number five, misconduct is the stain of a woman. Now the Buddha oftentimes is talking to one gender or another when he's delivering a teaching. So he will say something like this, like misconduct is a stain of a woman, but really you can apply this teaching to all people. It's not just for a woman that misconduct is a stain towards, it's all people, males, females, people who identify as uh, non-binary or, or no particular gender misconduct would be someone who's not practicing right speech, right action, and right livelihood from the Eightfold Path. That's where the Buddha talks about the moral conduct. And he provides this for you as guidance to help you understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, the results of your decisions. That when you practice right speech, right action, and right livelihood, you see that your personal and professional relationships blossom because you're not causing harm in the world. You're only making wise decisions about your moral conduct so wholesome results are being experienced. So if you have misconduct, where you're speaking with wrong speech, or you're having wrong bodily action, or you're having wrong livelihood, you're gonna experience real difficulties in your life. This is misconduct. Nobody's gonna come and punish you for those things, but because of your decisions in this natural law of gamma, it's going to produce certain unwholesome results in your life because of the lack of wisdom and unknowing of true reality that you're not familiar with what wise moral conduct is. So as long as you're conducting yourself with misconduct, this is going to be a stain in your life. It's going to make it very difficult for you to get to a peaceful and joyful mind 
in a peaceful and joyful life because of this lack of wisdom around the moral conduct and making unwise decisions about your moral conduct. Number six is selfishness as the stain of a donor. So this is why this particular chapter is in this book because we're studying about generosity and how generosity eliminates selfishness because as long as the mind is selfish and it's holding on to things tightly, then the mind still has craving, desire, attachment. You're going to need to get to the point where you're willing and able to practice generosity based on the middle way, but you're willingly able to share your possessions and other things that we're going to be talking about today and things that the Buddha is sharing that we should share. Because as long as there's selfishness in the mind, you're not going to be able to experience enlightenment. Uh, An enlightened being isn't going to be selfish in any regard whatsoever. But also they're going to be practicing generosity in the middle way. Because if you're giving excessively and you don't have the basic needs for your life, then this is going to cause problems in your life. You can't be peaceful and joyful if you don't have food, for example, right? You're, you're hungry. You, you don't have food. You can't sustain the body. But also, if you're not practicing any kind of generosity at all and the mind is selfish, then you're not going to be able to experience liberation of mind because the mind is still holding on to certain things in your life. So that's why he's saying selfishness is a stain of a donor. So you should be willingly ready and able to share your time, effort, energy, and resources in order to get to enlightenment. Number seven, evil, unwholesome qualities are stains in this world and the next. So evil, unwholesome qualities are things like ill will and central desire, things like this. There's others as well, but these are mental qualities that are very unwholesome and that are causing significant difficulties in your life. Central desire and ill will are two of the the big primary ones, but there's others as well. And as long as those evil unwholesome qualities are in the mind, it's going to cause difficulties in this world. And if you're reborn into a future life, then it's going to produce problems in those lives as well. And if these evil unwholesome qualities are in the mind at the time of death, then there will be rebirth. And it's just going to continue to cause problems in your life over and over and over again. And then there's number eight. This is ignorance. The unknowing of true reality is a stain more significant than these, the very worst of stains. So if you understand dependent origination and what the Buddha taught about what's really truly leading to discontentedness and rebirth, it's ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. Craving desire attachment, this clinging, this chasing after the objects of your affection, this holding on to things, this is what's causing discontentedness. This is the root cause that's really causing it in a nutshell. But the whole reason why craving desire attachment exists is because of ignorance. Because the unenlightened mind is unknowing of true reality, it doesn't understand things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, and all these other teachings, particularly the natural law of gamma. This ignorance is going to continue to precipitate more and more difficulties in one's life because there isn't the wisdom that has been cultivated to eliminate and eradicate craving, anger, and ignorance. There's antidotes to each one of these. In the 10 fetters themselves, there's antidotes to those as well. 
Ignorance is part of the three unwholesome roots. It's part of the ten fetters. Uh, you'll see it all throughout the Buddhist teachings. It's part of dependent origination. It's showing up here and all other places because it's this unknowing of true reality, the lack of wisdom that is actually leading to all the problems that an, a being is experiencing. That's the high level problem that's causing everything else in this chain of dependent origination that creates and causes discontentedness and rebirth. So that's why the Buddha says this is essentially the most significant stain, the very worst of stains, because the only thing that's actually going to eliminate that is wisdom. This is why I share that you shouldn't believe the Buddha's teachings. Instead, you should learn, reflect, and practice. And when you're learning, you're learning with books, videos, podcasts, spending time with a teacher. You're learning what they're teaching you, but you're not believing it. You're reflecting on it. You're starting to independently verify whether those teachings are true or not. And then you start practicing those teachings and you see the condition of the mind in your life gradually improving. This is how you know you're learning the wisdom that the Buddha taught because you see the improvement to the condition of the mind. As long as this ignorance is there, the mind's going to continue to experience discontentedness. In terms of the 10 fetters, which every single one of those need to be eliminated in order to get to enlightenment, ignorance is the very last one to go. And ignorance isn't just intellectual learning, that if someone might intellectually understand the teachings, but their practice, they're not practicing the teachings. That means there's still ignorance in the mind. So the intellectual learning is just one facet of the cultivation of wisdom. And somebody might think that understanding wisdom and ignorance, that it's just the intellectual learning that we're talking about here. But in reality, that you need to learn, you need to independently verify, but then the way that ignorance truly gets eradicated is when you're practicing the teachings. Because you might intellectually know the five factors of well-spoken speech and what right speech is but in your daily life, you're not practicing it necessarily. That means there's still ignorance in the mind because it's not able to practice right speech, for example. So the way that ignorance gets eradicated is yes, through learning, through reflecting to independently verify, but then that practice is so important to really eradicate the ignorance. That's where the wisdom is fully cultivated and you're actually able to practice the teachings. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. On YouTube, Tonka has a question. She asks, what is exactly not knowing true reality, not knowing the teachings? Yes, it's not knowing the teachings, but remember the teachings are explaining the natural laws of existence. So the three universal truths, for example, the universal truth of impermanence, the unenlightened mind is ignorant of that or unknowing of that reality. So when we're not learning this path and we don't know this path, there's this unknowing of true reality that there's such thing as a universal truth of impermanence. So we go around in the unenlightened state craving permanence because we don't know any better. Um, and this is where when you see people struggling in life, that rather than look down on them or think that they're a bad person, instead we can just understand that it's this unknowing of true reality, that they just don't understand that their mind is craving permanence when we understand this universal truth of impermanence. That's just one thing. But 
all these teachings of the Buddha, he's explaining these natural laws, things like the three universal truths and the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. He's exposing the natural law of gamma. That's what the mind is unknowing of, is this natural law of gamma. The dependent origination is also a natural law and all these other universal truths and four noble truths and things like this. That's what the mind is unknowing of as part of this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And that only can get eradicated through learning, reflecting, and practicing. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, also, talking about the middle way, is there a middle way for each of these? Or it seems like a couple of them, um, like evil, unwholesome qualities and misconduct, it seems like there might not be a middle way for those, or is that being understood incorrectly, sir? Yes, I would agree with that, right? Like, but a lot of these do have uh, a middle way, like, you know, lack of upkeep is a stain of houses. Well, if you're like neurotically trying to, you know, clean your house and keep it like, you know, OCD, what we would say OCD, right? Even though that's not a a real true disorder. It's just that the mind's struggling and having craving. Whereas if somebody is craving to keep their house permanently looking beautiful, that's craving desire attachment. But if we never took time to dust and vacuum and wash dishes and clean the toilets and things like that, that wouldn't be wise either. So we need to find this middle way where we can fulfill all the responsibilities that we have in life, but also keep the upkeep of our house as well. So a lot of these do have a middle way. In practicing the middle way is what's going to bring the mind to practicing these. You know, so laziness, of course, that's on one side of things. So what you would like to do is bring this to the middle where your practice is, is in the middle. And then heedlessness is on one side of the spectrum. You're looking to arise this mindfulness in the middle. Misconduct is on one side. You're looking to bring your mind to the middle where you're practicing moral conduct. The craving part of that would be if like every single time you made a mistake as you're transitioning your mind to enlightenment, you became fearful or had guilt or shame. If you allow that to occur, that's because there's craving for perfection. So the misconduct is on one side. The craving to be perfect is on the other side. The middle is the full path and practicing right speech, right action, and right livelihood. There's definitely a middle with you know, practicing donating because selfishness is on one side, but craving to give all the time and wanting to give all the time and giving in excess where you don't have the basic resources you need would not be the middle. So there's definitely a middle there. And then, you know, we could go through all of these, but there's a middle that you're looking to gain. And what the Buddha is exposing is typically one side of that. And then what you're looking to do is bring the mind to the middle. And it's his teachings that are going to help you understand how to do that. Okay, I think I understand, sir, with things like evil and wholesome qualities of mind and misconduct. We should have the goal or interest to bring this to where we're having good conduct and where we're getting rid of evil, unwholesome qualities of the mind and arising wholesome qualities of the mind, but we're not having that craving, desire, attachment for perfection to always be doing this. It should just be a goal 
Is this being understood correctly, sir? 100% correctly. So, for example, if you saw jealousy arise in the mind and you know that's an evil, unwholesome quality, okay, so it's there. So rather than beat yourself up about it and feel miserable like you're such a bad person, instead be like, all right, there's some jealousy there. What's the antidote to that? Oh, sympathetic joy. Let me have joy for this person's success and not be jealous here. Let me let go of that craving. And then that's how you bring your mind to the middle. Where oftentimes we struggle early on, where once we learn these teachings and we understand all these unwholesome things, then when we see we're not able to do that readily, sometimes we we have the guilt and the shame and the fear comes into the mind. But you need to let that stuff go because that's just being produced by craving. And instead, just look at how to bring your mind and bring your practice into the middle way. And that's what's going to bring the peacefulness and the joy. Okay, I understand. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay, so let's go to chapter 22. So I'm going to be reading this one. Here, this is titled, Qualities That Bring One to Hell or Heaven. Before I read this, I would like to just preface it with sharing that the Buddha never used rebirth and hell or heaven as any particular way to either guilt, shame, and fear somebody into learning his teachings or to incentivize somebody to learn his teachings. He's just explaining true reality of what's actually occurring because somebody would need to know this as part of moving to enlightenment. So here he says, monks, possessing these qualities and without having abandoned three stains or pollutions, one is deposited in hell as if brought there. What three? One is immoral, unwholesome, and has not abandoned the stain of immorality or unwholesomeness. One is jealous and has not abandoned the stain of jealousy. Three, one is selfish and has not abandoned the stain of selfishness. Possessing these three qualities and without having abandoned these three stains, one is deposited in hell as if brought there. Monks, possessing three qualities and having abandoned three stains, one is deposited in heaven as if brought there. What three? One, one is virtuous, practicing moral conduct, and has abandoned the stain of immorality or unwholesomeness. Two, one is not jealous and has abandoned the stain of jealousy. Three, one is not selfish and has abandoned the stain of selfishness. Possessing these three qualities and having abandoned these three stains, one is deposited in heaven as if brought there. So as I mentioned, the Buddha did not use hell and heaven to motivate people to learn and practice his teachings or to guilt, shame, and fear people into learning his teachings because, you know, what the Buddhist teachings are all about is eliminating guilt, shame, and fear, among other things. So you're not going to use guilt, shame, and fear in order to motivate somebody to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear. It's not the way that this works. Instead, he's just helping you see true reality of this natural law of existence that if you have immoral conduct or unwholesomeness, if you have jealousy, if you have selfishness, then these are the things that lead to rebirth in the hell. And the Buddha talks about other things that lead to rebirth in hell as well. This is a real place. It's an actual destination out of the five realms of existence, hell, 
animal realm, the afflicted spirits, the human realm, and the heavenly realm. These beings are in the same time and space as us. It's not like it's hell is deep down into the core of the earth and heaven is way up in the sky somewhere. These beings are experiencing existence right in the same time and space as us. And some people have had experience with these beings of hell or heaven. So when you read something like this, rather than to perhaps allow conditioning of the mind that you may have experienced other parts of your life and maybe in other traditions where people were using hell and heaven to uh, fear you or guilt you or shame you into doing something or incentivize you to do something, let go of that conditioning from other traditions and instead just focus in on what it is that the Buddha is actually teaching you here. What he's actually teaching you is right here where he's saying, hey, you know, be sure you have good, wholesome conduct. Be sure that you're not jealous and be sure that you're not selfish and make sure you understand how to practice in a way that you improve your moral conduct, that you eliminate jealousy, and that you eliminate selfishness, because a lot of other parts of his teachings are helping you understand how to do that. Here, he's just explaining that these things lead to rebirth in hell, and when you don't have these things, it leads to rebirth in heaven. But the same things that lead to rebirth in heaven are also the same things that lead to enlightenment. So what you're interested in doing is getting to enlightenment in this life and not being reborn in hell or heaven. Neither one of these places would be interesting or desirable necessarily that hell is like a prison the Buddha talks about. In heaven, the beings there oftentimes are reborn into other realms anyway because they lack motivation. They don't have that dedication to learn and practice. They're essentially lazy or complacent. So if you are reborn in heaven, it's not a permanent existence and it's not an ideal existence because you're only experiencing pleasant feelings and oftentimes there's that lack of motivation. We're here in the human realm. We experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. So we have a built-in motivation to encourage us to actually get to enlightenment. So focus in on what the Buddha is explaining in terms of what one should practice in order to get to heaven here, even though your goal isn't to get to heaven, your goal would be to get to arahantship where you can get to enlightenment. But the same things that he talks about that leads to a heavenly rebirth are the same things that lead to enlightenment as well. So practicing wholesome moral conduct, ensuring that one is not jealous, and ensuring that you eliminate selfishness. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Does not appear that there are any other, or any questions at this time, sir. All right, so that brings us to chapter 23. Destinations for those who are stingy and those who are generous. A heavenly being. Those who are stingy here in the world, selfish people, abusers, people who create obstacles for others engaged in giving alms a donation. What kind of result do they experience? What kind of future destiny? We've come to ask the perfectly enlightened one this. How are we to understand it? The perfectly enlightened one. Those who are stingy here in the world, selfish people, abusers, people who create obstacles for others engaged in giving alms, they might be reborn in hell, in the animal realm, or Yama's world. If they come back to the human state, they are born in a poor family where clothes, food, pleasures, and play are obtained only with difficulty. 
Whatever the unwise may expect from others, even that they do not obtain. This is the result in this very life and in the future a bad destination, a heavenly being. We understand thus what you have said. We ask, O Gotama, another question. Those here who, on gaining the human state, are friendly and generous, confident in the Buddha and the teachings, and deeply respectful towards the community, what kind of result do they experience? What kind of future destiny? We've come to ask the perfectly enlightened one this. How are we to understand it? The perfectly enlightened one. Those here who, on gaining the human state, are friendly and generous, confident in the Buddha and the teachings, and deeply respectful towards the community, these brighten up the heavens where they've been reborn. If they come back to the human state, they're reborn in a rich family where clothes, food, pleasures, and play are obtained without difficulty. <clears throat> they rejoice like the heavenly beings who control the goods acquired by others. This is the result in this very life and in the future of a destination. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So you see here that you're seeing a common theme among the teachings of the Buddha around generosity and other things too, like having confidence in the Buddha, the teachings in the community. All of these things are leading to improved condition of mind. So here he's just answering this heavenly being questions that are being asked of the Buddha. And a Buddha will teach heavenly beings as well as human beings as well. There's documented teachings where he was teaching heavenly beings at different time and they would come to him and ask for guidance. And as a Buddha arises in the world, they have very deep wisdom to help humans and heavenly beings. And this is where a lot of beings will be reborn into the heavenly realm. Of course, a lot of beings are going to get to enlightenment during the lifetime of a Buddha, but also there's going to be a lot of beings who end up being reborn in the heavenly realm as well because of learning the teachings of the Buddha maybe they're just kind of falling short of that or maybe they're actually getting into that third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner and they're getting into the heavenly realm and then they're going to get enlightenment from there so here the buddha is just explaining how stinginess affects one in their life and it affects their rebirth and even when they come back it affects their rebirth not only being reborn into lower realms but even if they come back into the human state it's affecting us there too so the Buddha is not doing this in order to push people or, you know, fear people into learning and practicing his teachings. He's just sharing the natural laws of existence and helping you to understand what's going to occur. And then what decisions you choose to make about your life and how you practice is totally up to you. But he's helping you to understand what will or will not occur in any given situation. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. On uh, YouTube, Tonka asks, do newborn babies already have cravings? Yes. The whole reason why a being is born as a newborn human being is because of craving. If they didn't have craving, they wouldn't be reborn into a human state. You can observe that craving from the time of birth, that when a baby comes out, they're typically very discontent, right? Because they come out of the womb. They're in the womb. They've got all this ambiotic fluid. They're 
not having to really work or do anything, you know, mom's eating, everything's going through the umbilical cord. It's like, oh my goodness, life could not be more wonderful when you're in the womb of your mom, right? It's just so cozy in there, so warm, so lovely. You don't even have to get up and go to the bathroom, right? But then when it's time for birth and the umbilical cord gets cut, right? Like The mind is very discontent because it experienced this impermanence. It went from the womb where everything was just perfect, according to the infant that's in there, to now they've experienced this impermanence. And now because of craving that permanence of the mother's womb, now there's this discontentedness that occurs when the baby comes out of the womb. So you're born with craving because you had craving in previous lives. That's what actually created this next birth. And infants are going to have craving and they're going to have ignorance. They don't have ill will or anger. They have the frustration, right? They have that irritation. That's one of the lesser versions of the anger, but they don't have ill will, right? Like we're not sitting in the nursery hating on another baby. Or even when we're like one, two, three, we don't have ill will. Ill will gets conditioned in the mind more and more and it takes more and more firm rooting as we age. But there's craving and there's anger and ignorance. All three of these are there, but that anger is just very light. It's that frustration. It's that irritation, that annoyance that's in the mind, but there's no ill will there. But the whole reason why all this is occurring is because of the ignorance that persisted in the previous life. And there was craving, which precipitated the next birth. So when we're born, we still have that ignorance and we still have the craving. Uh, Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay, so now we'll go to chapter 24. This is titled Five Kinds of Wealth. Monks, there are these five kinds of wealth. What five? The wealth of confidence, the wealth of virtuous behavior, moral conduct, the wealth of learning, the wealth of generosity, and the wealth of wisdom. One, in what monks is the wealth of confidence? Here, a noble disciple is endowed with confidence. He places confidence in the enlightenment of the Tathagata. Thus, the perfectly enlightened one is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the fortunate one, the perfectly enlightened one. This is called the wealth of confidence. Two, and what is the wealth of virtuous behavior or moral conduct? Here, a noble disciple abstains from the destruction of life, abstains from taking what is not given, abstains from sexual misconduct, abstains from false speech, abstains from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. This is called the wealth of virtuous behavior or moral conduct. Three, and what is the wealth of learning? Here, a noble disciple has learned much, remembers what he has learned, and accumulates what he has learned. Those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, which proclaim the perfectly complete and pure spiritual life, 
such teachings as these he has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. This is called wealth of learning. 4. And what is the wealth of generosity? Here, a noble disciple dwells at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. This is called the wealth of generosity. 5. And what is the wealth of wisdom? Here, a noble disciple is wise. He possesses the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. This is called the wealth of wisdom. These monks are the five kinds of wealth. When one has confidence in the Tathagata, unshakable and well-established, and virtuous behavior, moral conduct that is wholesome, admired, and praised by the noble ones. When one has confidence in the community, and one's view has been straightened out. They say that one is not poor, that one's life is not lived in uselessness. Therefore, a wise person remembering the Buddha's teachings should be intent on confidence in virtuous behavior, confidence in vision of the teachings. All right, so here, this is a very common way that the Buddha would teach. He would take something that was part of society and he would kind of flip it upside down and give it a new meaning. So oftentimes we're taught that monetary wealth is what is going to lead to wonderful life. And the Buddha is taking this understanding of wealth and helping you to see what real true wealth is, that it's not about monetary wealth or having possessions or things like this, but instead, if you're interested in having true wealth, then you cultivate this wealth of confidence, this wealth of virtuous behavior, this wealth of learning, this wealth of generosity, and this wealth of wisdom. These are the true wealths that the Buddha is describing because this is what's going to lead to your liberation and the peacefulness and the joy in the mind to get to this enlightened mental state. Without these five, you're not going to actually be able to experience enlightenment. And he always prioritized wisdom above everything and anything else. Even though all these others are super important, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without them. Wisdom is always number one because the number one hindrance is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, which we were talking about earlier. So here he's just going through one by one, referring to this noble disciple who is somebody who's determined and dedicated and diligent to learn and practices his teachings. And he talks about this wisdom that discerns arising and passing away. What he's talking about there is someone who understands the universal truth of impermanence. That's the arising and passing away. So if you discern the arising and passing away, then you understand the universal truth of impermanence. And then he's saying this wisdom that he's sharing is it's noble and penetrative, 
Remember, during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was a noble class, right? The, the royalty, the upper echelon of society. We may even say that there's a certain amount of that even today. And people think that, you know, if you're not born into that rich, wealthy life, that you're destined for a life of, you know, uh, misery, essentially, is what people thought during the lifetime of the Buddha. And some people think that today, too, because they think of this lack of wealth, and it's only wealth that's going to lead to this, you know, continuous permanent joy. But you learn very readily that money is not going to lead to happiness. It'll lead to conditioned happiness, but it's not going to lead to permanent joy. If that was the case, every single person who's wealthy and rich would be joyful and would be peaceful. But that's not the case. That's why we see that, yeah, some rich people die by suicide. They have other difficulties and problems in their life that money does not solve all the problems in your life. So the Buddha took not only this understanding of wealth and flipped it upside down on its head, but he took this idea of nobility, of being noble, and he flipped that upside down too. And he said, you know, what a real noble person is doing is they understand this penetrative wisdom that leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. That's what it means to be noble based on your wisdom, based on your moral conduct, based on your mental discipline. That's what's actually going to determine whether you're noble or not. And having these wealths is what's going to lead to that. So that's what he's doing is flipping these things um, upside down so that people can really see true reality. Because as long as we're in this delusion or this ignorance or this knowing of true reality, thinking that it's money that's going to lead to permanent happiness, that's just not true. And as long as we think that if we're born into a rich family, our life is going to be wonderful. And if we're born into a family that lacks financial resources that were subjected to a life of misery, this isn't true either. This is delusion. This is ignorance. This is the unknowing of true reality. So the Buddha is flipping that upside down on its head and helping you see true reality of what true wealth is and that you can be noble. You can function in a noble way no matter what family you're actually born into. And that's what's going to lead to the complete destruction of discontentedness. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, are there any questions on this chapter, sir? Okay, so let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter 25. Yes, sir. Uh, seven kinds of wealth. Monks, there are these seven kinds of wealth. What seven? The wealth of confidence the wealth of virtuous behavior or moral conduct, the wealth of moral wrongdoing, the wealth of moral concern, the wealth of learning, the wealth of generosity, and the wealth of wisdom. Miranda, this is all exactly the same as the last one, except for moral wrongdoing and moral concern. So I think you could probably just read those to make it easier. Um, and what is the wealth of moral wrongdoing? Here, a noble disciple has a sense of moral wrongdoing. He is regretful of bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct. He is regretful of acquiring evil, unwholesome qualities. This is called the wealth of moral wrongdoing. And what is the wealth of moral concern? Here, a noble disciple sees the danger of wrongdoing. He sees the danger of bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct. He sees the danger of acquiring evil, unwholesome qualities. 
This is called the wealth of moral concern. Uh, this part is new down here. These monks are the seven kinds of wealth. <clears throat> the wealth of confidence, the wealth of virtuous behavior, the wealth of moral wrongdoing and moral concern, the wealth of learning and generosity with wisdom, the seven kind of wealth. When one has these seven kinds of wealth, whether a woman or a man, they say that one is not poor, that one's life is not lived in uselessness. Therefore, a wise person, remembering the Buddhist teaching, should be intent on confidence in the virtuous behavior, confidence and vision of the teachings. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here, everything is exactly the same as what we were talking about in the previous discourse, in the previous chapter, except for these two, moral wrongdoing and moral concern. Let me share with you what these are, because you would need these in order to get to enlightenment. What moral wrongdoing is, is this is where you understand the things that are wholesome and the things that are unwholesome that you understand that things like generosity and mindfulness and concentration and loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, you know, on and on and on and on. These are the things that are wholesome. And then you understand the unwholesome aspects, right? Like central desire and ill will, complacency, things like this, on and on and on and on. And you learn that through the Buddhist teachings. What are the wholesome qualities of mind that are going to lead to enlightenment? And what are the unwholesome qualities that are going to produce unwholesome results? So this is understanding, you know, I don't usually use the words right and wrong, but that's essentially what this is, is understanding wholesome and unwholesome or right from wrong. And when we're off the path to enlightenment, before we study the Buddhist teachings, we don't necessarily understand this. We understand it to a certain degree, depending on what our background is. Like we might understand like killing is unwholesome, uh, where we understand that talking polite and respectful to somebody is, is wholesome. We might understand those to a certain degree, but perhaps we're not practicing it fully. We might understand things like stealing or sexual misconduct or lying or substances that cause heedlessness are unwise for us and they lead to unwholesome results. We might understand that to a certain degree, but we don't deeply understand it and we're not deeply practicing it when we're off the path to enlightenment. But once we learn it as part of this path, we understand the wholesome and the unwholesome. This is moral wrongdoing, that we understand these things from this intellectual level. And then there's this moral concern where you understand and you see the danger in having certain misconduct through your bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct. This would be a wrong action, wrong speech, and wrong intention, right? This is a little bit reordering of the way that the Buddha taught it. When he's talking about bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct, he's talking about someone who's not practicing right speech, that's not practicing right intention, right speech, and right action. And if you can see the teachings and you see the wisdom and what he's sharing as he's exposing this natural law of gamma, and you can compare and contrast that to different experiences you've had in this life, then you know that what the Buddha is teaching is 100% the truth. You might not be able to practice it fully right now in your life, but you at least have the moral wrongdoing where you understand wholesome and unwholesome. And when you do unwholesome things, 
you see the danger in that and you know that there's a danger there. This is what moral concern is. Where when we're off the path to enlightenment, I call this like going through the forest, knocking down the trees and burning up the forest. We could care less typically in some cases what we're doing in life. We're just knocking down all the trees. We're burning up the forest. It's all about our own selfish desires. It's just mine, 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 mine. It's about the ego, satisfying the ego and all these other things. And we almost to a certain degree don't really pay attention to our discontentedness. We don't pay attention to our impact to other people. We just plow through life with this ignorance and this unknowing of true reality, with this craving, these selfish desires, and with this anger, this hostility and bitterness. We're just plowing through the world. But someone who's cultivating these qualities of moral wrongdoing and moral concern on this path to enlightenment, you're understanding wholesome and unwholesome things that the Buddha is teaching. And you have this concern where you're not interested in doing harm to other beings. And this is what's going to help you to develop something like right intention and then ultimately practice right speech and right action. Because if you understand the wholesome and unwholesome, okay, I understand it intellectually. But now with the moral concern where you can see that when you make unwise decisions, it leads to unwholesome results. And when you make wise decisions, it leads to wholesome results. When you see that and you know that, then you have this concern where you're not interested in creating any kind of issues in life or having this misconduct of body, verbal or mental misconduct because you see the danger in that if you did these things, that it's going to produce unwholesome results, not in a fearful way. You're not fearing this, but you just understand that there is danger in having this unwholesome bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct. So this is what moral wrongdoing and moral concern is. And you would need to cultivate both of these because the moral wrongdoing is helping you understand what wholesome and unwholesome is. The moral concern is that motivation in there that you have a concern that you're not interested in causing harm to others or yourself, that you see the danger in unwise decisions. So that's what's kind of propelling you and giving you the decision to no longer do these unwholesome things and to cultivate the wholesome. And the moral wrongdoing is helping you to understand what that wholesome and unwholesome things are. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, There are no questions at this time, sir. Okay. One other thing I would like to point out before we move on from this is notice how that previous chapter was talking about five kinds of wealth. Sometimes when people read the teachings of the Buddha, if they're reading it in isolation, they might think that that's the only thing that he taught about the kinds of wealth, the five kinds of wealth. But here you can see in another discourse, he adds two more, making it seven. So you'll see this with the Buddhist teachings that he'll sometimes give you a list of things. And if you just think that's the only list and you're not taking his teachings in and looking at the totality of his teachings, then you might miss something like this. And that's why these are put together in this book one after another so you can see them very closely. And you'll see this in this book series that teachings like this have been paired up for a reason. Whereas if you are reading the vast plethora of content in the Pali Canon, which is 45 volumes, these two teachings might be spread apart really far away and it wouldn't 
be easy for you to be able to observe that he talks about the five kinds of wealth in one place and the seven kinds of wealth in another place. This is what this team of people in Bangkok have done for us by going through the 45 volumes of books in the Pali Canon. They've assimilated this and brought it together in such a way that allows us to study it and not have to dig through the Pali Canon to find these kinds of things. So this will really uh, accelerate somebody's learning by learning with this book series. So I just thought I would point that out for you that you'll see this situation. Whereas if you thought that, okay, the Buddha sharing this list of five kinds of wealth, and that's the only five, then your mind might be thinking, okay, this is permanently the five kinds of wealth. And you might be confused when he starts sharing the seven kinds of wealth. But he does this regularly where he'll add things in and kind of show you another angle of the teachings. And then this is like a layered effect where he might be teaching you to a certain layer of detail. And then once you understand that layer of detail, he'll take you into another layer of detail. So the five kinds of wealth is one layer of detail. And then the seven kinds of wealth is a deeper level of detail. And then he'll do this like the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. And then he breaks it into the detail of the 10 fetters. And he'll do this in multiple parts of his teaching. So you'll see that as a commonality. All right, so we go to the next chapter, which is chapter 26. Benefits of building dwelling place. Venerable sir, I had these 60 residences built because I need merit, because I need heaven. What line of conduct am I, venerable sir, to follow in regard to these dwelling places? Well now, do you, householder, establish these 60 dwelling places for the use of the community of the four quarters, present and to come? Yes, venerable sir, and the great merchant of this city, having answered the perfectly enlightened one in agreement, had those 60 dwelling places established for the use of the community of the four quarters, present and to come. Then the perfectly enlightened one thanked the great merchant of this city in these verses. They ward off cold and heat and beast of prey from there, and creeping things and gnats and rains in the wet season. When the dreaded hot wind arises, that is warded off. To meditate and obtain insight in a refuge and at ease, a dwelling place is praised by the perfectly enlightened one as a chief gift to the community. Therefore, a wise man looking to his own best interest should have charming dwelling places built so that those who have heard much can stay therein. To these food and drink, robes and lodgings, he should give to the upright, the mind purified. Then they teach him the teachings, dispelling every ill. He knowing the teachings here attains Nibbana or enlightenment, taintless and purified. So what the Buddha is explaining here is that offering a dwelling place was considered to be a very high offering. 
because this is an environment in which people can actually learn the teachings and come together. The ordained practitioners and the teachers would be able to gather and have a place to reside and rest and sleep and eat, but also they have a place to talk and share the teachings. And if you were in a situation where you're able to build a house, for example, or a temple or something like this for individuals to learn these teachings, the Buddha is saying this is the highest quality in terms of a possession to be able to offer and to cultivate this merit because this provides an environment in which people can actually learn and understand these teachings because that's what's actually going to benefit the world and benefit a community is having a place to gather and to be able to actually share the teachings and actually provide a place for teachers and ordained practitioners to be able to rest and get sleep and eat and uh, do the things that they need to do in order to be prepared to then share the teachings. So here he's just explaining that and he's doing it in verse form uh, with this merchant. This must have been a very rich individual during the lifetime of the Buddha to be able to offer 60 places for people to gather and to sleep. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, so chapter 27. Remember your generosity. Again, Mahanama, you should remember your own generosity thus. It is truly my good fortune and gain that in a population obsessed by the stain of selfishness, I reside at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness. Freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. When a noble disciple remembers his generosity, on that occasion, his mind is not obsessed by craving, anger, or ignorance, unknowing of true reality. On that occasion, his mind is simply straight, based on generosity. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the teachings, gains joy connected with the teachings. When he is joyful, joy arises. For one with a joyous mind, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body feels calm. For one feeling calm, the mind becomes concentrated. This is called a noble disciple who resides in balance among an unbalanced population, who resides untroubled among a troubled population. As one who has entered the stream of the teachings, he develops memory of generosity. Mahanama, you should develop this memory of your own generosity while walking, standing, sitting, and lying down. You should develop it while engaged in work and while living at home in a house full of children. All right. Thank you, Miranda. Another thing that the Buddha is really well known for and is very helpful to you as a student is he shows this cause and effect this action and result. He does this in his teachings all throughout his teachings where he takes something like this, generosity, and he's walking you through step by step by step and showing you how it leads to some beneficial result so that you can see the truth for yourself because you can take a teaching like this and you can look at your life and you can see either in your life or other people's life how what he's teaching is actually true. So here he's saying, okay, when you practice generosity, you should remember that you've done this. And even though you're in a population of people who maybe their mind is obsessed with selfishness, 
but you reside at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, that you're willing to give and share, you're devoted to charity, and you're joyful in giving and sharing. So observe that, that even though other people may not be practicing generosity and they may be selfish, instead, make sure you remember that your practice is to practice generosity. And then when the noble disciple remembers his generosity, on that occasion, his mind is not obsessed by craving anger and ignorance because you understand the wisdom of practicing generosity and you understand that you're letting go of this craving, you're letting go of this anger. On that occasion, his mind is simply straight. When the Buddha is talking about straight, what he's talking about is that you see clearly that your mind isn't burdened and muddled with this craving, anger, and ignorance. Your mind is practicing this straight way that you can see very clearly what's the true path to enlightenment, walking straight down this path. And he's saying, okay, you've done that based on generosity. Generosity is what's helped you to not obsess with craving anger and ignorance and practice this straight way where your mind is now walking straight on this path to enlightenment. A noble disciple whose mind is straight because it's generosity that led to the mind now practicing this straight way gains inspiration in the meaning gains inspiration in the teachings. And then when you understand the teachings and the meaning, you gain this joy connected with those teachings. So if you're learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha and you're studying these teachings through investigating them and you're starting to understand them more and more, you might observe this joy arising in the mind that you're finally figuring out kind of this secret code to life because you're understanding the natural laws of existence that you didn't understand in the past. And we experienced all these struggles and difficulties in life because we lacked wisdom. And when you start learning the teachings of the Buddha and you gain this wisdom, there can be this joy that springs up in the mind because finally it's like getting this breath of fresh air that you understand the natural laws of existence and what leads to making wise decisions and producing wholesome outcomes. So as that joy is arising, which is what the Buddha is talking about here, for one whose mind is joyful, the body becomes tranquil. The mind performing optimally, as it will as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, the body becomes very light and very tranquil. If you've ever gotten to the end of your day and you feel like your feet are just heavy and burdensome or your neck and your shoulders are just feeling so painful and burdensome, an enlightened being doesn't experience this any longer. The reason why the body is feeling that way is because the mind is burdened with craving anger and ignorance. And now with the mind having to do all that work with all that pollution of craving anger and ignorance, you'll come home and your body will just feel sometimes like a wreck. It'll feel like you're, you've got cinder bricks on your ankles and you're carrying around these big weights on your ankles or on your shoulders or your neck or something like this. Once the mind is performing optimally and it's got this joy, which is one of those mental qualities that an enlightened being is going to have that is unconditioned and permanent, then the body becomes very tranquil, becomes very light. When the body's tranquil, then the mind is calm right? It's not shaken up. It's not unsteady. It's calm. It's got this equanimity, even in difficult situations. 
And when the mind is calm, then there's concentration. This is something that I teach, that when the mind's calm, there's mindfulness or awareness of mind, there's concentration, and then there's the ability to access your wisdom. Where if the mind is uncalm or shaken up, you're not going to have awareness of mind or mindfulness. You're not going to have concentration or singleness of mind. Therefore, you're not going to be able to access wisdom and you're going to make unwise decisions that leads to unwholesome results. So when you can maintain the calmness and composure of the mind, including in difficult situations, then you can have mindfulness, concentration, access wisdom, make wise decisions and experience wholesome results. This is called a noble disciple who resides in balance among an unbalanced population. Because this population, remember, he's talking about is selfish. But if you're practicing generosity, then your mind can get to this balance instead of the mind being shaken up. Who resides untroubled among a troubled population. As your mind becomes more and more enlightened and more peaceful, you'll see that people are having difficulties and struggles with some of the most simple things that are happening in life. So you'll find that your mind will be untroubled, even in significant situations where other people might just be experiencing so many struggles and difficulties, you won't be experiencing that. And he says, as one who has entered the stream of the teachings, he develops memory of generosity. So if you're entering into that stream enter, that first stage of enlightenment, in order to get into that first stage of enlightenment, you would have to actually be practicing a certain degree of generosity. Even to get into the first jhana, which is a preliminary phase that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment, there needs to be a certain amount of generosity that is practiced. So in order to enter into the stream of the teachings that is going to lead to enlightenment, you would need to practice generosity and then have the memory that you've done that and you're continuing to do that on a regular basis. And the Buddha is saying to ensure that you remember this, when you're walking, standing, sitting, and lying. Essentially, he's saying at all parts of your day, just remember to practice generosity. That's essentially what he's saying here. And then he says you should develop it, meaning generosity, while in this memory of the generosity, while engaged in work and while living at home in a house full of children, right? So some of us can relate to that. If you have lots of different children, it can be really difficult to remember certain aspects of your practice. So the Buddha is saying, even if you've got a house full of children where there's all these different things that are happening on a daily basis, be sure that even when you're at work or when you have a house full of children, that you remember generosity and you continue to practice generosity in all parts of your day. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, so now we go to chapter 28. The eight gifts. Monks, there are these eight gifts. What eight? One, having insulted the recipient, one gives a gift. Two, one gives a gift from fear. Three, one gives a gift thinking he gave to me. Four, one gives a gift thinking he will give to me. Five, one gives a gift thinking, giving is good. Six, one gives a gift 
thinking. I cook. These people do not cook. It isn't right that I who cook should not give to those who do not cook. 7. One gives a gift thinking. Because I have given this gift, I will gain a good reputation. 8. One gives a gift for the purpose of enhancing the mind, equipping the mind. Here what the Buddha is describing is he's describing the eight reasons why one might choose to give a gift. If you've insulted somebody, meaning you've done something you know, unkind, you might choose to give that person a gift. And that actually might potentially be helpful to clean up your karma. This is something that I do with my son. When he was younger, he was in pre-K and kindergarten, first grade, second grade. There were some times where we would find out that he was having trouble with a certain person in his class, maybe another child, and he had done something that was unwise. And we would guide him towards making a decision to give a gift. And this is a way to clean up your karma. But still, one is giving a gift with this intention in, in mind, right? And then one might give a gift out of fear. If somebody's fearful of their boss, for example, and you're fearful that if you don't give your boss a gift at Christmas, that maybe you're not going to get a promotion or something like that. So maybe you might give a gift just from fear. One gives a gift thinking, this person gave to me. So if somebody gives you a gift, you might think that I should give a gift back. And then you might give a gift because you want somebody to give you a gift. This is number four that he will give me a gift if I give him a gift. So this might be one of the ways that you're thinking. One gives a gift thinking, giving is good. That you know that, okay, giving is good, so let me give this gift. And then number eight is during the lifetime of the Buddha, you know, there were only certain people that knew how to cook, kind of like today too, but cooking was a very high quality skill because being able to have food, first of all, being able to prepare it and make it tasty based on the substances that they had, certain herbs and spices and things during that time, that was a real skill. And if you could make really good quality food, it was helpful for you and the people around you. So here the Buddha is saying one gives a gift in terms of giving food based on being able to cook and other people can't cook. So let me just cook for other people because they're not able to cook. And then the seventh one is, because I have given this gift, I will gain a good reputation. That somebody gives a gift because they want a good reputation among certain population of people. And then the last one, which is actually the one that the Buddha is actually teaching. All of these others are essentially leading to situations where you're only giving because you're kind of wanting something in return doesn't mean that you shouldn't necessarily give in those situations, but it's not real pure generosity that's fully helping the mind to develop. Because number eight is one gives a gift for the purpose of enhancing the mind, equipping the mind. This is the elimination of craving, desire, attachment. That is the practice of generosity is helping you to do that. So here the Buddha is explaining the eight reasons why somebody might give, but it's this last one of equipping the mind, which is the real 
practice that you're looking to get towards is that you know that you're not just going to give a gift because you want a gift in return, or you're not going to just give a gift because somebody gave one to you. So now you feel obligated to give that person a gift. Instead, your generosity and the way that you practice generosity should be based on enhancing your mind and equipping the mind. That's what the Buddha is teaching as part of generosity. And all of these other reasons are reasons why you might practice generosity, but more and more you would like to get to this pure generosity where you're just purely doing it without any expectation of anything in return and just to enhance the mind through eliminating craving, desire, attachment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now we go to chapter 29. Yes, sir. The eight grounds for giving. Monks, there are these eight grounds for giving. What eight? One, one gives a gift from craving or desire. Two, one gives a gift from anger or hatred. Three, one gives a gift from ignorance or delusion, unknowing true reality. Four, one gives a gift from fear. Five, one gives a gift thinking, giving was practiced before by my father and forefathers. I should not abandon this ancient family custom. Six, one gives a gift thinking, I have given, having given this gift, with the breakup of the body after death, I will be reborn in a good destination in a heavenly world. Seven, one gives a gift thinking, when I am giving this gift, my mind becomes tranquil and energy and joy arouse. Eight, one gives a gift for the purpose of enhancing the mind, equipping the mind. These are the eight grounds for giving. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here again, the Buddha is explaining reasons why people might give and practice generosity. And all of these other reasons aren't pure generosity. They're going to produce unwholesome results. So here, if you give out a craving, so for example, now that we're getting ready to get to Christmas, parents might go out and have this craving to please their child, and you might buy things in excess and now put yourself in debt. And this wouldn't be wise that if you put yourself in debt just to please the mind of your children in order to get certain gifts, this is going to put struggles and strains on the family. So one might give gifts out of craving and desire. And we do this not just at Christmas time, but sometimes people do this in other situations as well. And same thing with anger and hatred. If you have a certain amount of anger, a certain amount of hatred, you might choose to give gift or this ignorance, delusion, and knowing of true reality, this fear. This number five is that if your parents uh, have practiced, your elders in your community have practiced giving, then maybe you're just giving because you saw other people do it and feel like I should not abandon this ancient family custom. Uh, and that's the reason why you might be choosing to give. Giving a gift, thinking that, you know, if I give and I practice generosity, that I'll get to this heavenly world and that's why I want to give. And then the seventh one here is that I might choose to give or somebody might choose to give a gift because the mind becomes tranquil and it has energy and joy that arises up in the mind. So all seven of those is actually going to lead to a practice where there's not pure generosity, including this one where the Buddha talks about here that someone's giving just in order to try to get to the heavenly world. 
because many different places so far in this book and more to come, you'll see that he reminds you that generosity does lead to a heavenly rebirth. But here he's teaching you to not think about that, that that's not what the goal of generosity is, that if you're thinking that you're going to practice generosity just in order to get to a heavenly world, that's actually not pure generosity. Uh, instead, what he motivates, encourages people to practice is this eighth one where you're giving for the purpose of enhancing the mind, equipping the mind. That's pure generosity, where you're not having any expectation of anything in return, but you just know that you're giving and you're sharing, you're practicing generosity to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And that's part of what you're doing is part of your practice on a continuous ongoing basis. On a daily basis, you're practicing generosity. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. On YouTube, Tonka asks, even enhancing our own minds sounds selfish to me since it is about us. It's more about understanding what's truly happening versus what's the reason why you're doing it, right? So if you understand that by practicing generosity, it is eliminating craving, desire, attachment, but you're choosing to practice generosity just because you know it's the right thing to do and it's helpful in the world and you would like to see of course good things happen in the world so you're not having expectation that it will enhance your mind but you just know that it will that's what the buddha is talking about here yes thank you sir mm -hmm. uh, there are no other questions at this time okay so now we go to chapter 30, which is our last chapter for today. This is titled, The Five Timely Gifts. Monks, there are these five timely gifts. What five? One, one gives a gift to a visitor. Two, one gives a gift to one setting out on a journey. Three, one gives a gift to a patient. Four, one gives a gift during a famine. Five, one first presents the newly harvested crops and fruits to the virtuous ones. These are the five timely gifts. At the proper time, those wise, charitable, and generous people give a timely gift to the noble ones who are stable and upright, giving, given with a clear mind. One's offering is vast. Those who rejoice in such deeds or who provide other service do not miss out on the offering. They too take part in the merit. Therefore, with a non-regressing mind, one should give a gift where it yields great fruit. Merits are the support of living beings when they arise in the other world. So let me explain what he's explaining here. So he's talking about these five times that one might give a gift, right? So you might give a gift to a visitor. If somebody comes to your visit you, you might choose to give that person a gift and kind of welcome them, right? He's saying this is a, a good time to potentially give a gift. Doesn't mean you have to give a gift, but he's just saying this is a time that would be wise to give a gift. Someone's coming to visit you, maybe you give them a gift. Maybe it's food, right? Uh, maybe it's something else. Two, one gives a gift to one setting out on a journey. So if somebody's leaving and heading out on a journey, you might choose to give them a gift that's going to support them in their journey. Three, 
One gives a gift to a patient. So when somebody's sick or ill, you might choose to give that person a gift at that time. One gives a gift during a famine. So if somebody's struggling with food and you've got resources, you might choose to give a gift during this time. Five, one presents the newly harvested crops and fruits to the virtuous ones. Here, as crops and fruits were being cultivated and harvested, the virtuous ones are the ordained practitioners and people who are sharing these teachings. He's saying this is a good time to make an offering to share those newly harvested crops and fruits so that the mind isn't holding on to all this food and harvesting that has happened. So maybe perhaps you think about this in terms of as you're getting income, you might choose to make offerings, right? Whereas if you have this big dry spell where you're not harvesting, where you don't have plentiful resources, that might not be the best time for you to give a gift to the virtuous ones, the people who are practicing these teachings really deeply. But when you have all these plentiful resources, that might be a really good time for you to then make offerings. And then the Buddha goes into more detail here. He says, at the proper time, those wise, charitable, and generous people give a timely gift to the noble ones who are stable and upright, given with a clear mind, one's offering is vast. So here he's saying making offerings to the noble ones, people who are really well developed in these teachings, that their mind is stable and they're practicing this upright way, this wholesome way of being, this wholesome path to enlightenment. And given with a clear mind, that your mind isn't cluttered and conflicted of whether you should or shouldn't give, but instead your mind is very clear about giving and that your offering is vast, meaning that you know, you're not just kind of giving mediocre offerings. You're not just, you know, eating some food and you have some leftovers and then you kind of give it to somebody. But instead, you make a concerted, intentional effort to create an offering and then you make that offering. And it's a vast offering. It's representative of what it is that you're able to actually offer. Here he says, those who rejoice in such deeds or who provide other service do not miss out on the offerings. They too take part in the merit. What he's saying here is that if anybody is helping to make this offering, that they too are practicing merit. So say you're the one who actually goes and makes the offering to a teacher or to ordained practitioner, but maybe your mom or your brother or your sister or your co-workers contributed to that offering and you were just the one that actually made the offering, those other people are also benefiting from that as well because they practice generosity. They don't have to necessarily be the one who's handing the offering to a teacher or to an ordained practitioner, but just the fact that they were contributing to the offering, they also are generating this merit. And even the people, he says here, who rejoice in the deed. So say you are making an offering to a teacher and say other people around you weren't able to make an offering on that day, but they just feel joy. It's like, oh, wow, uh, Miranda was able to make an offering to her teacher. And wow, that's very wonderful that she was able to do that. The Buddha is saying even that person is taking part in the merit because they rejoice in seeing this deed of generosity being practiced towards sharing the teachings and helping people to learn his teachings. 
Therefore, with a non-regressing mind, one should give a gift where it yields great fruit. This non-regressing mind is, if you've ever given something and then you had remorse afterwards, like, oh, I gave too much, or, oh, I didn't give enough, I should have gave more. This is remorse. This is a regressing mind. And the Buddha is saying, you should make an offering with a non-regressive mind. So that means that you put thought into the offering and you ensure that you're practicing the middle way, where you're not giving too much, but you're not giving too little either. And the Buddha is saying, okay, that when you make this offering with this non-regressive mind, when you don't have this remorse, and you give this gift to people who are sharing his teachings, he's saying this yields great fruit because the people who are sharing his teachings are benefiting the world through sharing the teachings that are helping to eliminate discontentedness and get people out of this whole cycle of rebirth and experiencing discontentedness over and over and over again. And he's saying merits are the support of living beings when they arise in the other world. What he's saying here is that when you produce merit in this life, and you're reborn into a future life, he's saying that that also supports you in that future life. And he talks at different times in his teachings about how if you are reborn in a future life, any generosity that you practice and merit that you produce, it's going to benefit you in that future life. And you've seen some of those teachings already throughout this book, and you'll see some more where he talks about that, where if you practice generosity and you practice cultivating merit in this life, should you not get to enlightenment and need to be reborn, it's going to benefit you in that life as well. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. On YouTube, Tonka asks, since Christmas is around the corner and we, have, we study generosity, any particular advice that you may have, sir? The same thing that I've been sharing is practice the middle way, right? And not giving excessively, but also not being selfish either, you know, practicing generosity to give and share with the people around you. And sometimes we might select kind of a small number of people and give really big gifts. But what I would encourage you to do is maybe look at expanding the number of people that you practice generosity with by bringing maybe the price of what it is that you would normally spend in the Christmas season down for each individual gift so that you can spread your generosity to a larger number of people. Whereas if normally you might only give gifts to maybe close family members um, and they would be really expensive gifts, by bringing that down a little bit, you can then spread your generosity more widely. And you'll see that this will actually be better for you that rather than just giving three or four gifts, that if you're giving 10 or 15 or 20 gifts, that you're actually practicing giving a gift and handing it to somebody more frequently over the course of the Christmas and holiday season. And this will actually be more beneficial to the mind. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And then also, I had a question about this um, with a non-regressing mind. When someone is maybe just starting out working on eliminating attachments to things or cravings for things, I think that you have taught that at times it would be a wise idea to give that item that maybe you have an attachment towards away and in those instances, we may feel some regret or some remorse about giving this item. 
but that can be a way to train the mind to fully cut off and let go of that attachment to that item. Am I not understanding this correctly? Yeah, I don't necessarily suggest giving away something that you have attachment to because that wouldn't be wise in all situations. It's a approach you can take, but the mind oftentimes is attached to so many different things. If you gave away every single thing that your mind's attached to, you probably wouldn't have much left, particularly early on in practice. But if you're observing that your mind is attached to food and you tend to hoard food, that's an easy one to, you know, to purchase and then give away. But say, for example, if you noticed you were attached to your mobile phone, giving that away, you know, that could put a real burden on you. So there's other ways to eliminate craving, desire, attachment than just generosity. Generosity is one particular way that we practice in order to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but it's not the only way. So depending on what your mind is attached to, you may need to practice generosity in order to help your mind to let go of it. But in other situations, there's other ways to practice um, that as well. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. What guidance would you give to someone who has practiced generosity and then finds themselves in this state where they are feeling remorse? What would be the most wise course of action there, sir? The wise course of action would be to look at why the mind is remorseful. Is it because you feel like you gave too much or you feel like you gave too little? And then whatever side the mind is on, then the next time you make an offering, bring that to the middle. So if you feel like you gave too little, then you need to increase what it is that you're giving. If you feel like you gave too much, then you need to throttle that back and give less next time. So look at the reason why the mind is remorseful, whether you gave too little or too much, and then bring that to the middle so that you know where that middle is. And then understand that your middle is going to change as life goes on. So right now, you might only be able to give a certain amount of, of money or time or effort or energy. But then as life goes on, you might be able to give more or you might be able to give less or you might need to give less based on what it is that's going on in your life. So you need to be able to throttle that up and down and be attentive to the middle way as it relates to giving and practicing generosity. So if you observe whether it's because you feel you gave too little or you gave too much, then you should be able to know where to move your mind and move your practice to bring it to the middle. Yes, wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay. Well, as I typically do at the end of class, I would like to just thank you all for joining for today's class. If you've been reading these chapters prior to class and then you're coming to class having already learned, this is outstanding for you. But of course, you can only do what you can do. So if your time only allows you to come to class or listen to the replay and that's what you can do, wonderful. That's why we read the chapters and that's why I open up for any questions. But what you will find is if you do make some time in your life to read these chapters before class, then when you come to class, you'll be a bit more prepared and you'll even have some questions during the class as well that will help you clarify what it is that you're learning. And then you'll actually be able to retain the teachings for a longer period of time because you studied them over the course of the week and you studied them in class as well. But if all you can manage is to study them in class, 
then so be it. That's where you are in your practice. But just aim to try to create some space in your life if you can, because there you'll be able to see more benefit to your practice as you're able to read prior to class and or after class as well. In our next class, next week in the Polycanon in English study group, we're going to be studying the next 10 chapters. So we're going to be going into chapters 31 through chapters 40. And there we're going to study those next 10 chapters and be sure that you get a chance to ask any questions that you like related to the chapters that you're studying. So we'll be doing that next Saturday. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're still studying that retreat series from this past summer in the USA, and we're studying the path to enlightenment, practicing the path in the workplace. This is where I'm going to give you guidance on helping you to understand how to incorporate these teachings into your workplace so that you're not just practicing them in your private life, but you're also practicing them as part of your work life too because you wouldn't actually be able to get to enlightenment if you only practice these teachings in your private life. These teachings are applicable in all parts of your life, but you might be struggling with how to incorporate these into various parts of your work life. So I'm gonna share that with you as part of our class tomorrow in the group learning program and open up to any questions that you guys might have where you're having struggles and difficulties. You can ask those questions and I'll be able to help you understand how to apply these teachings in your work environment. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together. So you guys are welcome to join on Wednesday to encourage, support, and motivate each other in your meditation practice as we do loving kindness meditation together. So thank you all for joining for today's class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you in a future class. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.